Welcome back to Cincy Reformed Podcast. I'm Pastor Brandon, joined with Pastor Zach Wise. And we are together yet again in the studio of uh, Cincy Reformed. <laughs> and uh, but today we wanted to talk about uh, the Canons of Dort. We, we've done some stuff on the Canons of Dort, but we wanted to sp- talk about specifically about Pelagianism, because that word Pelagian or Pelagianism, that comes up in the Canons of Dort. And we want to talk about, you know, what is it, how is it being used, what's going on here in the Canons of Dort, linking the Remonstrant Arminians to the Pelagian error of the past. So, Zach, maybe you can start us off by just kind of briefly telling us a little bit of background between that debate that happened between St. Augustine and Pelagius. Yeah, so in the... Um fifth century roundabouts, there was a a British monk named uh, Pelagius, and he had come across um, some teachings from Augustine, uh, where Augustine, true to form, was extolling the uh, sovereignty and the sovereign grace of God. Uh, Lord, command what you will, and then give what you you command. And so, in other words, uh, Augustine was asking the Lord within a prayer to um, give him the power to fulfill God's whatever God commands. And Pelagius was very much objective to this because he believed that the, the command presupposes the ability to do it. Um, whereas Augustine was saying, no, God can command whatever. That doesn't mean I'm able. And because Augustine had a very high doctrine of human sin and depravity that is inherited um, from uh, Adam and the fall of Adam. Pelagius, however, did not view it in that way. He wanted to uphold the, you know, sanctity, you could say, of the human will, and that the human will has not been affected by sin and the fall. Uh, The way that Pelagians then began to speak about this was that Sin is really a matter of imitation. We have a bad role model coming forth from Adam. Adam and Eve uh, were bad role models. And because of our having bad role models in the past, we then sin because we're following those bad role models. And they would have said, no, there's nothing wrong internal to man, nothing wrong to our nature. We're not morally corrupt. We just have bad examples. And so it's more of nurture rather than nature in terms of our problems. And so, as you can see, this kind of way of thinking, it really comes back to a very man-centered approach to things. Uh, That Sin is um, only because of your individual action, not because of Adam's nature passed down. And then the the way that then affects salvation is that if your problem is that you've misused your will, which has been perfectly fine. The solution then is to use your will properly, which then is, gives us over to a sort of a, a self-salvation, a, a, a manner of saving ourselves by following the one good role model, uh, who is Jesus Christ. He becomes moral example only, and then as we follow in his footsteps, as we learn from his example, we save ourselves by using our free will and then we, over the course of time, are able to then save ourselves. And so that's a very um, non-nuanced way of 
thinking about the Pelagian uh, controversy back in the fifth century and its origin um, in the in Pelagius himself. But then that term, uh, the name Pelagius and Pelagian, those who follow his teaching, then gives birth to what's been called semi-Pelagianism. And so maybe you can talk about that a little bit, Brandon. Sure. So the early church condemned uh, Pelagianism, um, held, you know, upheld what Augustine was saying um, in, the, in those early days. And uh, about a hundred years after that, that battle between Augustine and Pelagius, about a hundred years later, there came about this kind of semi-Pelagian view. One of the big fig figures here is John Cassian. And the John Cassian and the semi-Pelagians wanted to say, okay, we, we hear Augustine on some things. We realize that, yes, we, um, we need God's grace to be saved. It's not something, you know, that I can just kind of pick myself up and do myself. And, 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 and I think they started to realize, well, maybe we're not exactly like Adam in the Garden of Eden, Eden in terms of being neutral or anything like that. Maybe there is some, some inability and in sin on our part. But the, so the semi-Pelagians would say, um, we do need God's grace. We do need God's help. We do need God to do this. But we can actually make the first steps toward God in our own nature. Uh, maybe even a, kind of apart from His grace. We can, you know, if you think of maybe a staircase, I can maybe walk the first three steps by myself, then I need the grace to go the rest of the way. And so it was kind of, they were trying to maybe merge both of them and say, yes, we need God, but at the same time, maybe there's some things I can do too. Um, and so that was starting to be battled, again, a hundred years after the Augustine-Pelagius debates. And, um, and again, the, the, the early church condemned that as well as, as heresy. They had a council called the Council of Orange that took up the matter of the semi-Pelagianism now. And here's what the Council of Orange said. They said, if anyone says that the increase as well as the beginning of faith and the very desire of faith proceeds from our own nature and not from a gift of grace, namely from the inspiration of the Holy Spirit changing our wills from unbelief to belief and from godlessness to piety, then such a one reveals himself in contradiction with the apostolic doctrine. If anyone asserts that he is able by one's natural strength to think as is required, or choose anything good pertaining to one's eternal salvation, or to assent to the saving message of the gospel without the illumination and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one is deceived by the heretical spirit. To love God is completely a gift of God. And so that was the Council of Orange responding to the semi-Pelagian um, errors and then we come to the Ramonstrons. Yeah, the Synod of Dort is going to uh, respond to. Yeah, the maybe thinking about the Ramonstrons as the another term to remonstrate is to object, and those who were objecting or remonstrating called called the Ramonstrons. They were um, heirs of the teaching of Jacob Arminius or James Arminius. And if you've heard of Arminianism, that's where it comes from. He died, I believe it was about 1610, is that right? Somewhere around <laughs> there. And then about just under a decade after his death, 
his followers were then taking his ideas, which he taught privately, he wouldn't publish publicly, he kind of kept to himself, was pretty sly about things. And the, but then his followers were taught by him in the uh, um, seminary, uh, in the seminary, the, these followers then began to speak openly about what he had taught and then to draw some logical conclusions from his trajectory of thinking. And then they began to object to many of the uh, reformed teachings that were found in the Belgic Confession and in the Heidelberg Catechism and that were just commonplace within the Reformed and Presbyterian and Anglican circles of the uh, Reformation. Well, that then um, led to the convening of the Synod of Dort, an international synod with delegates from all around uh, Europe to attend to uh, take upon the, themselves this matter. And then, but what was really then uh, concluded from this was that the Arminians were really just perpetuating within like a modern uh, way, a more modern clothing of the same issue of the semi-Pelagians and the Pelagians of old. They're really kind of the same at, at root. They're really the same kind of uh, error at its very base. A, a longing to, um, to, to give man more ability than scripture gives man and to make salvation, ultimately the deciding point falls to the will of man. And that why is it that one is saved and one is not? Well, whether you're Pelagian, semi-Pelagian, or Arminian, you all answer the same thing. Well, the reason, the ultimate reason that one is saved and one is not, is not God and God's grace. But for them, it was man and what man has done with and how man has used their healthy powers. Um, they're not dead in sin. They're sick, maybe. And so it comes down to how it is that the that man has then used um, the, the, the lingering power that uh, has been left to them. So a few statements here from Dort that really lumps in the remonstrance with the uh, Pelagians and semi-Pelagians of old. Here are a few uh, lines from them. For they have too low an opinion of the death of Christ do not at all acknowledge the foremost fruits or benefits which it brings forth, and summon back from hell the Pelagian error. Another, for while pretending to set forth this distinction in an acceptable sense, they attempt to give the people the deadly poison of Pelagianism. And finally, this teaching is entirely Pelagian and contrary to the whole of Scripture. Now, on the surface, there were going to be some differences, some different ways of articulating things. But when you get to the root of it, when you come back to exalting man, exalting man's will, exalting man's moral ability, you're really in the same place as the Pelagians were. And that's where you end up with the final analysis. So, um, Brandon, what are, what are some of your thoughts on this? What, what kind of things might you want to add to this uh, reflection? Yeah, so, I mean, it's interesting to see this kind of error get brought up again and again and again. And maybe different, you know, like you said, different uh, clothing. Maybe there's some things that are polished. Maybe things are, you know, like with the semi-Pelagians. They saw, they heard what Augustine was saying, and maybe we're going to adopt part of what he said. But still at root, I mean, there's still that one concern 
done, that we, we want to be autonomous, we want to have some freedom that is unshackled from God, that's a kind of a libertarian free will, where we can choose this or that, we don't like the idea of sovereignty, predestination, and so that, that's kind of what the Pelagians, and the semi-Pelagians are saying, uh, that they want to be, um, uh, yes, somehow um, outside of the control, the providential control of God. They, uh, and so you see that again with Pelagius, and then with the semi-Pelagians, and then with the Remonstrants, and it, it's the same root thing getting repackaged, even if some other things are being tweaked or polished or re reworked along the way, uh, but it's the same basic error. And we see this today, um, and even the Arminians of today are different. You know, as you look and read some of the, the older Arminians of the Remonstrant period, and then you read like Wesleyan Arminians or Baptist Arminians or Church of Christ Arminians. You're going to see differences and different flavors and they're going to look different and emphasize different things. And uh, some will be maybe more Calvinistic than others, even while they retain that same basic root that there is some way in which I am outside of the providential control of God. There's something that's outside of the sovereignty. There's something that, uh, that uh, is allowing me to determine and make that final choice. And I'm in the driver's seat, and I'm autonomous. And so um, there's going to be something there. So like, for example, in, I was reading a, a Wesleyan Arminian, um, and he was talking about election being you know, God, God's choice and salvation, God's predestination was he looks down the tunnel of time and he sees if you would choose him. And if he sees that you choose him, then, well, then he predestines you. But, well, who's, who's the decider there? Who's in the driver's seat there? It's man. So, like you said, it's a very man-centered way of thinking about salvation, of thinking about uh, just life in general, God and, and all of that. It's a weakening of sovereignty and a maximizing of human freedom and human will and human responsibility. Now, I think some of that reaction probably comes because people like Pelagius probably, probably heard what Augustine was saying and was thinking, well, why would I do anything? You know, if, if that's the case, if God is that sovereign, if God is in control, then maybe you know, then then that would lead me to this place of just not caring and staying home and not evangelizing and not praying and not going to church. And there's this kind of rationalism that kind of comes into play when we uh, don't quite understand something. You know, Scripture presents, I think. Uh, two basic things, that God is completely sovereign. He is foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And our wills, our, uh, we are born dead in sin. And we're not just sick, we're dead in sin, Paul says. Uh, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot choose rightly in and of ourselves. We are utterly dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's what the Bible presents. But the Bible also presents that we have a responsibility and um, that our choices are real. I'm not a puppet. I'm not making these fake pretend choices. Like, no, I'm, re I'm really making choices, and I'm really responsible for the choices that I make. And then the Pelagius and, uh, and the semi-Pelagians and the Ramon Strant would say, well, how is that the case? 
And for the biblical Calvinist, we would say we can't explain everything all the way down. We, we can't fully exhaust an explanation here, but we see these two things in Scripture and we maintain that tension because it's, it's presented to us in Scripture. I'm not going to weaken the sovereignty of God so that I can exalt some man-made thing like the Arminians want to do, but I'm also not going to reverse it in, in more of like a hyper-Calvinistic way where all of a sudden I'm a puppet and I'm not responsible. I don't want to do that either. There's a compatible uh, a compatibilism where uh, my responsibility and my choosing is compatible in a mysterious way, in a way that's hard to comprehend, but in a way that's biblical and true to what God has presented in his word. It's compatible with the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, the election of God. So I think, you know, I think that reaction by the Arminians is maybe a more rationalistic one of wanting to explain mystery and not liking mystery in the Bible, whereas the Reformed, being biblical, is saying there's some things that might be over my head here, but I'm going to maintain whatever the Bible says, and it, even if that means maintaining a few tensions here and maintaining mystery, and that's and that's okay. Do you think that within this you know discussion about tension mystery, it were really helped as we begin to think about? Uh, God as creator, as being transcendent mm -hmm. to us. Yeah. Because I think that where people get hung up is when you put God and man on the same plane with one another, mm -hmm. the same kind of being, then you try to say, oh, well, we must have the same kind of sovereignty. And if you're on the same plane with God with the same kind of sovereignty, then there's only so much sovereignty to go around. Mm -hmm. And so okay, if God has 100% of sovereignty on the same plane as man, that means man has 0%. But what we're saying is that God has a transcendent sort of sovereignty that envelops ours, it's beyond ours, it's the sort of sovereignty appropriate to a creator who is eternal. And we have a sovereignty that is appropriate to a temporal creature, not the same as God's. <laughs> His envelops ours is beyond ours, and so he can be 100% sovereign as he is God, and we can have the right sort of sovereignty that's appropriate to an image of God, man, and those can both be true because one transcends the other. But I think it's because of having too low a view of God, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, not not holding to the creator-creature distinction, as you, as you put it, kind of putting them on the same playing field rather than seeing God um, as transcendent. Right. I thought you might appreciate that being yeah, a Van Til kind right. of guy. So, you know, <laughs> let's just go there and uh, give, uh, give, give myself a, uh, some good marks and brands <laughs> estimation. So, uh, we, we hope it's been helpful for you, though, um, because we do see this in, in our lives. We see this in our, in, um, you know, as we interact with other Christians, sometimes in our churches. We see people who are struggling with these kinds of things. We need to recognize, as the canons of Dort rightly do, that this is really is a serious uh, matter because it's really getting at the at the root of um, who's in charge <laughs> and who is this all about? Is this about man's uh, choice? Is this about um, you know man and our uh, affecting all of, cre all of history and that we're the ones who are pulling the levers and ultimately in the driver's seat? Or is this about God's story who transcends us, who's in charge and who gives us comfort because he's in charge and who's bringing all things to a glorious end and who will act? Um, who will effectively bring about the salvation of those whom he has uh, chosen from the beginning of the ages, 
and we celebrate as you know Calvinistic Christians, Augustinian Christians, the uh, glory of God and His sovereign and saving grace. And so these are really big things. And so we encourage you to pick up the uh, Canons of Dort, have a read of those, have this uh, controversy in mind in, in the back of your minds, uh, so it can kind of help you to, to sort through some of these things. Uh, but this has been the uh, Cincy Reform Podcast. Uh, thanks for uh, joining us for this week's episode. Find our other episodes at cincyreformed.org. We're sponsored by Westside Reformed Church. Check us out, westsidereformed.org. If you're in Cincinnati, come join us. We'd love to have you with us on a, on a uh, given Lord's Day to meet you. And if you have any questions or any uh, comments, feel free to contact us. We'd love to hear from you. So until next time, we are the Cincy Reform Podcast. Uh, Zach here, Brandon, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye. Thank you.